Welcome to Fruitful and Multiplying, a podcast from the Jewish Fertility Foundation. I'm your host, Ilana Frank. The first commandment in the Bible is to be fruitful and multiply. But what if, due to infertility, that path isn't so straightforward? This is a podcast about the fertility path less traveled. From the inspiring and the inspired, and the cutting-edge technology and science that continues to evolve to make it all possible. All right, here we go. I am thrilled to welcome Dr. Bill Petock to Fruitful and Multiplying. Dr. Petock has done incredible work to support the mental health of individuals in the infertility community. His work really reflects what we at JFF strive to do, specifically around helping people with mental health issues. Dr. Petock sports the infertility community with his independent practice. He specializes in human sexuality, sexual dysfunction, and infertility. Additionally, Dr. Petock teaches psychology externs about the human sexuality as a clinical associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology of Thomas Jefferson University. He's also written multiple journal articles and book chapters about the intersection of psychology and infertility. I have to say, I'm excited about this one. He received his doctorate at the University of Maryland College Park in 1978. While I wasn't there yet, I came a few years later. And today we're gonna be discussing how mental health care for infertility has evolved and stayed the same during Dr. Petock's time in the field. Hello, Dr. Petock, let's begin. How did you get involved in psychology and infertility? Why did you become a psychologist and how did you specialize in infertility? As a professor, are there any lessons about infertility counseling that you were taught in school, but you intentionally avoid teaching your students? Well, we'll start with the psychology part first. Um, I majored in psychology as an undergraduate, um, thought I wanted to work uh, professionally in the field. Um, with kids and uh, went to grad school at the University of Maryland College Park. Woot, woot. I, indeed, it um, where I uh, got my doctorate in the school psychology program and started working with adolescents and children. Um, I started uh, to do a, a postdoc in family therapy. And what happens when you work with families is you work with marriages. And when you work with marriages, you work with sex. So I did a postdoc in family therapy. I did postdoctoral training in sex therapy. And I had this very interesting combination. And in 1985, my brother-in-law, who was a reproductive endocrinologist and one is, was in his fellowship at uh, Johns Hopkins, called me up one day and said, Bill, I have um, learned how to get people pregnant very well, but I do not understand the psychological issues that are involved with infertility would you be willing to see some people for me? And I said to him, okay, a background in family therapy, infertility is a family crisis. Yes, I would be willing to do that if you'll teach me the medical part of it. And so that's how I got into the world of infertility, different from many of my colleagues who got there by their own personal experience. It is interesting. You know, a lot of people, I always start off my conversations or my pitches with, like many of us in this space, it's personal. How does it feel? Do you feel like there's any gap when you're connecting to your patients? I, I don't, but it's because I've been doing this for 37 years. Um, the gap is um, I'm an outlier because I'm a man and I haven't had fertility challenges. So I'm a double outlier. 
Um, most of my colleagues, the great vast majority of them are female. And about 70% of them are people, women who have struggled with fertility issues. So I'm an outlier in that way. But when I go to my meetings, I am with a bunch of very bright, very committed people who, for the most part, happen to be women. And I do not mind. In fact, I rather enjoy that interaction with them. Um, it's been uh, an interesting journey for me because I've come to really appreciate this field, particularly the mental health side of it, because we're a relatively small cohort. Lots of therapists out there who work with marriages, who work with families, who work with substance abuse and depression and anxiety. I get to work with people who want to have a family. And I find that to be um, terribly rewarding. Terribly is probably the wrong word to use. Very rewarding. I love it. Okay, but you're not only working with individual clients, you're also a professor. Is that right? Well, I am on the faculty at Jefferson Medical College, um, where I'm an, a, an associate professor of uh, obstetrics and gynecology. And prior to that, I'd been on the uh, faculty at the um, University of Colorado. Um, same position, although I was an assistant professor, then I was younger and hadn't published as much. Um, so I do uh, work with psychology externs, uh, from a variety of the professional schools in Philadelphia, um, and um, have seen some, I've done some training with uh, residents there. So I, I do teach there as well. What kind of training are we talking about infertility specifically? I The training I've been doing with, um, with residents has been sex therapy. Um, the average medical professional gets less than 10 hours of human sexuality if they're lucky in the course of a four-year medical program. Um, but almost every patient they see has something to do with sex and patients do want to talk about sexual problems, but they do want their providers to ask the question, open the door for them because it's often uncomfortable to bring up. So that's what I have been doing. And I've been teaching residents I started teaching residents about sexuality here at Baltimore Sinai Hospital back in 83, when the same brother-in-law ran the residency program and asked me to come and teach human sexuality to his residents. What's the, what's the question, I guess, that you would share with providers and doctors um, to open the door for their patients around sexual? Well, if you're meeting with your OBGYN, mm -hmm. the pretty normal for an OBGYN after doing a, a history and physical to say, sometimes people experience difficulties with um, sexual functioning, such as pain, loss of desire, or difficulty having an orgasm. Has that, have any of those been a problem for you? Well, you start with, may I ask you some questions about sexual function? Mm -hmm. Somebody says, yes, you go ahead and give that next question. And if they say no, you say, fine, if you would like to talk to me about that in the future, please let me know. Fair. Okay. Interesting. And how do they, it's just like they're scribbling down notes and then they actually have to practice this with yes. real live patients. Okay. Yes. Um, okay. Thank you. So let's get to, you're, you're a writer. I mean, you've written and published several impressive um, books. Well, yeah? what, what I've edited, co-edited one I think impressive volume on All right. the, the interface between fertility, reproductive health care, and sexuality. Um, very fortunate to have worked with Kim Bergman, who's another psychologist out in Los Angeles. And we had uh, a wonderful group of authors writing chapters for us. Um, so that book came out just last year. Um, okay, so what's the summary? 
What's, what are the cliff notes? The cliff notes are um, there is an interface between reproductive health care, sexuality, and fertility. Uh, frequently, fertility is the re infertility is a result of some form of sexual problem. Frequently, sexual problems can be the result of infertility. Anybody who's listening to this podcast and has been um, in treatment um, has had the notion that there's more than two people in the bedroom with them, or that sex has become something which is on demand rather than because it is pleasurable. And so that's the sort of takeaway. And all of the chapters are written by authors who specialize in some area of um, sexuality and or reproductive health care. I remember the early days of trying to conceive before we knew we had a problem. And it just, I mean, it just sucked. You know, people are like, oh, take your time, have fun. I don't know if it's like at what point it just doesn't become fun. But I remember, I remember those days vividly. Well, it doesn't become fun when you're taking your temperature and you know you've got a window of a couple of days and it's like, come home and do me now. That's, that's not fun. I used to put it on our calendar and then one time his coworker found it and it's just, yeah, not fun. How embarrassing, right? You want to keep that private. Yeah. And he's, I'm, I'm like an open book these days, but he's a super private guy who did not it's, it's appreciate different. You're in the field now. I was not open then, but yeah, now but I'm now, clearly talking about everything, right? I think we had somebody on the call who um, a, a few weeks ago on the podcast who was talking to me about how to talk to my 10-year-old about masturbation. So like, I'm like, oh, give me details. But right. <laughs> I shared it with my husband. And he's like, eek, we can't talk about this yet. Um, so oh, I, I recently saw that in one of your chapters that you were co-writing, I believe, was called The Acquisition of Sexual and Reproductive Health Knowledge. Yes. Tell me a little bit more specifically what that what that means. What's that about? Well, what, what happened when we, we put together the um, list of authors and chapters for this book, one of the things that I was very interested, I like history. So what I was interested in is how is it that we got to where we are today, that we know as much as we do about sex, and as much as we do about fertility, how did humanity come to um, all of this knowledge? So I did a deep dive and read anthropological studies and um, looked at a bunch of historical artifacts uh, that are indicators of sexuality. Um, probably the most famous, if anybody's listening to this podcast is familiar with the Venus of Willendorf, which is a presumed to be a fertility goddess of about 15, well, 30, about 30,000 years ago, um, a round-bellied woman with large pendulous breasts, um, shows up in, in the sexuality books frequently. Uh, but I wanted to go a little bit deeper than that. So I did that. And I worked with a colleague from Johns Hopkins, Arik Marcel, who I happened to have met at a conference where we were both on the same program. I'd never met him before. He is a professor of uh, adolescent pediatrics at Johns Hopkins, and we live two and a half miles from each other, never met. And he was giving a talk on um, young men's knowledge about reproductive health. Um, and I was talking about um, creating um, therapeutic environments that are conducive to men participating in fertility, um, infertility conversations. Um, and so we had lunch together and he was really sharp and we had a really great time. And 
when this book started to come together, I asked him to um, to co-author the chapter with me. So he's very knowledgeable about um, sex education policies um, internationally um, and uh, how young men acquire knowledge about reproductive health or don't, which is mostly what happens with young men. Um, and so we we worked together. I did the real deep dive stuff and he did the more current contemporary stuff. So where does the U.S. rank in terms of teaching our boys about reproduction and sexual health? Well, as most of your listeners are aware, it really depends on what state you live in um, and what those boards of education deem appropriate um, and what those legislatures deem appropriate. Um, we do a less than adequate job. We are uh, very concerned about teaching abstinence. Um, although there is no statistical evidence that teaching abstinence prevents unwanted pregnancies. Um, we would be much better off teaching about um, the use of contraceptive methods that are effective. Um, we don't teach about sexual health in um, the pleasure component of it. Um, and so what we do is we let young men and women find out about sex in other ways, many of which are inappropriate by watching what happens on television. Um, young men are prone to watching pornographic material to learn what happens about sex. And of course, anybody who's watched porn understands that that's not real because it's written and acted and edited, which is not how what we do in the bedroom takes place. So we, we don't do a great job. Is there a country that you found in your research or your co-author a country that's doing a good job? I think some of the Scandinavian countries do a pretty good job, um, but pretty good. It's all, you know, just just depends on on, on so many different things. Um, what are they doing that we should be doing? Well, I think we should be having honest conversations about sex at an earlier age. Um, you don't have to get into the details about how to. Um, however, and this, I think, is appropriate. You You want to talk to children at in developmentally appropriate ways. And I can talk to you more about that in terms of um, donor conception, those conversations, because those are very important things to do. And you do, do it differently for different ages. I think the same thing is true for, for sexual health. Um, that's, those are the important things. And, I, and the difficulty is if we charge public education with providing that information, We've now asked educators to provide training in how to read, how to write, how to do arithmetic, how to understand science. Oh, and now we want them to talk about sex and emotional uh, facility and you know, so many things in such little time with limited amounts of resources. Some of the private schools um, who can afford to have good sex educators available of the I'm familiar with, I've got a colleague here who does a fair amount of sex education in private schools here in Baltimore. And I've listened to her speak and she's very thoughtful and, and she, she teaches differently at middle school than she does at high school because what kids need to and want to know is different. Um, but the resources are important and the will to provide the education and the information. There's a fear in some communities that if you give kids the key to the car, they will want to drive. Our belief probably would be better stated that if you teach kids about the value of driving and the inherent danger in driving recklessly, 
they will become better drivers, especially if you teach them good driving skills. You can translate that into sex the same way. Yeah, it's it's more than just what the banana and the condom from the olden days. Okay. Yes, it certainly is. Um, I appreciate that as a mom of three growing boys. Um, How fortunate for you. Yeah, there's I'm lots one, of I'm lots of penis one. talk in my house, sure um, but we want it guided. We yes. want to talk about it properly. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, let's talk about COVID. I, I, you recently published a study about the effects of COVID on patients receiving infertility care. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Let's uh, talk about it. Well, Dr. David Seifer and I were very fortunate to work together. We had a cohort of patients from uh, the, the greater New Haven area and from New York City. Um, Dr. Harry Lehman at, uh, at Moses Montefiore worked with us on this. So what we were interested in doing, and this was early on in COVID, this was, we, we started collecting data in May of 2020. Um, we were interested in two things. We were interested in their emotional responses as well as their level of resiliency. Um, so we were, we were interested in how were they able to cope? What did they do to cope? What kind of strategies did they employ? And how did that affect their emotional responses? Um, And what we found was that more resilient people had less anxiety. Not surprising um, because you would think that people with greater resiliency are more flexible and able to cope better. Now, Now, this was early on in COVID. There was no vaccine on the horizon. Fertility clinics had been shut down. Uh, because the danger of transmitting the virus when doing any kind of procedures was very scary for people. And um, there was a a great deal of anxiety in the the infertility patient community, because when was I going to be able to go back to getting treated? I want to have a family in this horrible disease. People were dying left and right. but it doesn't make us stop wanting babies. I, 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 we, people were, I, we felt it too. People still wanted babies, um, and they didn't want their treatment interrupted. We we found a number of things. We found that some programs talked with patients directly. Uh, Providers called patients and said, this is what we're doing, and this is why we're doing it. And other programs sent an email out. No surprise to us, the direct phone calls were better received than emails because it was a personal touch. And so our recommendations to providers was that's going to be a good idea. We went into this with the notion that this is not the first time this is going to happen and it won't be the last time it's going to happen. So programs are likely to face something similar in the future. And we wanted to be able to provide recommendations to programs about how to better work with patients so that the impact would be lesser. Not gonna go away, still going to be awful to, to be restricted in the kind of health care that you want to have because there's a disease which could impact particularly having a baby. Um, but we wanted to give people advice about how to do a better job. So we, we found that. Um, you know, people who were able to get outside and exercise did better than people who turned to drink or drugs to moderate their stress. Not surprising at all. Um, people who didn't spend a lot of time watching the news and reading everything online about what was awful going on, did better than those who uh, were very restricted in how they gained their information about the disease and and what it meant. So what did you do with that information? 
You collected it, you researched. Oh, yeah, we, 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 we collected the information, we analyzed it, and then we published it um, for other providers to utilize. It's, the study's been incorporated in a couple of meta-analyses, and um, other people were doing the same thing. Some people were doing internet um, data collection. We were doing direct-to-patient data collection. So it's a smaller sample. Um, we still have some, and it was all female patients because these were departments of OBGYN, reproductive endocrinology. We have some data um, on male patients, um, and there's much less published on male patients as there is in general in the infertility field. Um, but we haven't been able to get it analyzed yet. And I presume, like many other therapists, your numbers skyrocketed over the past two years? Well, yes, but um, my practice has changed. Um, uh, I reached a, a milestone, a birthday with a zero at the end, and elected to stop seeing any other kind of patient and to work, see patients only three days a week. So my, and there's a compact SIPAC, which allows me as a SIPAC certificate holder to practice telehealth across state lines. So, Is that a new thing? I've been hearing a lot yeah, about it. Yeah, in the last five years. Got uh, it. Okay. There are now 31 states which have uh, an active legislation which allows it. Um, so I I'm not representative of my colleagues who are younger and working five days a week and have perhaps more diverse practices. Um, I'm very, very focused on fertility treatment and a little bit of sex therapy thrown in just to keep me honest. Um, <laughs> Well, mazel tov on that. Well, that's, a, that's a huge accomplishment. Thank you. Well, I, I got to be old enough, as I say to people, to, to be very specific about what I want to do. Well, then I have a question about that. You've been you've been around in this space for a while. Yeah. Have you noticed over the years? Um, well, what have you noticed over the years in terms of how the infertility counseling world has changed? Like whether it's different language, do you think we're starting to break the stigma around infertility? I, I think we're doing a better job, but we are nowhere near out of the woods on uh, destigmatizing infertility, um, uh, particularly with male factor. Um, that's we got a long way to go there. Um, two things stand out. Early on, I was primarily counseling people with regard to loss and um, sadness and coping skills and things like that. Today, the bulk of my practice is about third-party reproduction. So two things have happened. Egg freezing didn't exist when I was starting um, and IVF success rates were relatively low. I started in 1985. The first IVF baby born in the United States was 84. Uh, 81, 70, 70, I'm sorry, 81, 78 was um, first IVF baby in the world. Yeah, I just interviewed her. She's awesome, yeah. Louise. So the first IVF baby born in Baltimore was in 84. I'm, I'm looking on my wall. I have the Life, um, okay. you know, the famous Life cover yep, magazine? Yep. Okay, Sure. I used it in a talk I did in October at the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, where I interviewed the first IVF baby born in Baltimore and Got the it. doctor who was responsible for the procedures and the mom. Um, and she's a Baltimore woman and her mom um, used to live in Baltimore. Um, she, her, her dad is deceased. He was the Baltimore Orioles great pitcher. Um, 
um, I'm, you know, this is going to be terrible because I'm going to get this all wrong right now. But he, he played for the Baltimore Orioles and Mike Flanagan was his name and Kerry Flanagan. We can fact check later. It's true. I got it correct. Um, and Carrie Flanagan is her name and and um, and Carrie and her mom and um, Dr. Garcia, um, who was uh, at um, the Jones Institute at the time, um, uh, all were part of a panel. And it was quite interesting to have them talk about what it was like in the 80s. And it's so different today. Um, so different. Um, anyway, so that. Yeah, it's real, real different. So that's it. A lot of third-party reproduction. Um, we know an awful lot more about stress and stress reduction techniques. We know way more about what reasonable expectations are. Um, and I think a lot of the work that I do is helping people create reasonable expectation for outcomes. So we have access to many, many years of outcome data. Um, for IVF centers. Uh, the uh, Widen Act of 1992 requires that all programs that do IVF report their results annually. And so CDC carries that data and the Society for Assisted Reproductive Technology, SART.org, has that information. And I've worked with SART. I've chaired their website committee for six years. I chair a branding committee and I've served as the mental health rep to um, SART. So I've been involved for about 12 years. The database is exceptional. It really gives very, very fine detailed analysis of what a woman under the age of 35 can anticipate based on her diagnosis and a variety of other factors uh, and all the way through 42 plus. Um, and we have some predictive models. So sitting down with patients and giving them realistic expectations becomes very important. If you watch TV or read the newspaper, it appears that every celebrity who uses reproductive technology gets pregnant right away. And of course, that's not true. Um, but that's not a good story. And reality is not always a good story. So that's part of it. I yeah, that's helpful. I love SART. I mean, we use it for so many different things. We use it even now. We used to make um, our medical advisory council rate the fertility grant applications based on several factors. Yep. Now we can just go to the SART cap calculator and it's like it does so much work behind the scenes yep. um, makes our doctors lives a little bit easier sure. um, among other things yep. um, all right my last question is are we have many listeners who are you know in the process in the thick of it right now yep. what would you say what would you say to them about what? I mean, that's such a big... So you talked about like in the early days, you used to talk more about feelings and hope. And today you're a little bit more realistic with expectations. Well, we talk about feelings and hope too. I mean, that, those are all very important components because there's no question that this is a stressful and emotionally laden experience for everyone. Um, I think two big things, I think for uh, people in relationships, um, where one or the other person has a fertility diagnosis. Um, it is important to recognize that two people going through the same experience at the same time are going to react differently at different points in time. And just because one is um, in a different spot doesn't mean that that person does not care about what's going on. That's normal. Uh, people grieve losses in different ways and that there is no right way to grieve. Um, that's also an important concept. Some ways may be more effective for one person than for another, 
but that doesn't mean it's good or bad. Certainly, there are certain behaviors which are not useful, like substance abuse, excessive gambling, you know, things like that. That those are obvious. So that would be one thing I would say that it's important to recognize that at any one point in time, one person is not necessarily going to be in the same place as the other. Um, secondly, we have the medical community has developed very powerful tools um, for helping people to conceive. And that um, that is that's adds hope into the situation. Um, at the same time, not every couple will be helped because some problems are intractable. Um, and more importantly, not everybody has the same resources to utilize all of those tools. And I think that's one of the greatest challenges reproductive health care faces is creating better access to care, um, a wider range of services at a more affordable cost. I'll say amen to that. Um, Dr. Peacock, this has been awesome. I'm glad I met you again. <laughs> And like I'll remember you the third time. Um, this has been awesome. We've learned a lot. Thank you. We really appreciate Thank you. it. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and uh, with your listeners as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Fruitful and Multiplying. And as always, reach out with more podcast ideas and feedback. And don't forget to follow us on social media at Jewish Fertility Foundation.